0: Good evening, everyone. Good evening. As you can see on the screen behind me, I've got my Bible open up to the book of Romans. Romans, the seventh chapter, is where we're going to be this evening. So let's all be uh, looking together there as we continue our journey this year through the epistle to the Roman church. And we will spend the next few minutes here in the seventh chapter this evening. As you're turning to Romans chapter 7, let me say how great it is to see everybody tonight. So glad that you are here this evening. It has been a good day. It's been an encouraging day in our worship period this morning and in the songs and in the prayers that have been offered already this evening. And I trust that you've had a good afternoon. I hope that you've been encouraged today. And I hope you've got a mind that is ready to focus upon the Word for these next few minutes because when we're in Romans, that requires us to be attentive and to be locked down on the things that Paul is writing in this magnificent yet sometimes complex book. And there are some complex things, maybe just, maybe just grammatically in this particular chapter, but I'm ready to work through those things tonight. Let's read together in Romans chapter 7. I'm looking here at verse 6. That's where I'd like to begin. In Romans 7, this is verse 6 where Paul says, But now we are released from the law. We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we are able to serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. In the last several years, the National Football League has been wracked with controversy about what exactly should be considered a catch. Now if you're like me, you might be surprised to hear that something as simple as a catch I thought that was something we all understand. A catch. That's a catch. But it is surprising to learn that that is something that is a source of great controversy within the NFL. So much so that something as simple as a catch is now subject to nearly endless debates and replays and reviews and disputes in practically every NFL game. Well, the NFL's response to that in recent years has been to issue more and more rules and to make more and more clarifications, and to offer more and more definitions about those clarifications and about those rules. They want everybody to know and be absolutely clear and 100% certain what exactly a catch is and what exactly a catch is not. Can you imagine how all of that new rule giving and defining and clarification, how all of that is gone? It's actually not gone very well at all. Because there are still controversies in virtually every single NFL game to this present day as to what and what is not a catch. You know, I've been thinking about that. That attempt to try to fix things by making more and more rules. That actually sounds very, very similar to people of faith and what people of faith have been doing for, really, for centuries. Whether that's the Pharisees who stacked all their extra scrupulous definitions of what work was on top of God's laws about the Sabbath. Or maybe that's the monks in the Middle Ages who retreated all the way to monasteries up in the mountains and took vows of silence and would not speak in order to maintain moral purity and spirituality. Or maybe that's even the Puritans who regulated not only the length and the type of garments that you were allowed to wear in your clothing but even more so even the color of the clothing that you wear in order to maintain propriety and modesty. It seems as if just historically, man's go-to move in making sure that everybody's doing right, everybody's behavior is in line with what it needs to be, is to just make more rules. Just institute more laws. Let's just define everything right down to the nth degree. Let's establish for ourselves some very clearly defined lines. That way we know exactly where right and wrong both reside. In fact, sometimes even in our attempts to be right with God, we end up making rules and then we have to come right behind that and make another rule in order to keep up with the rule that we just made. And in the church at Rome in the first century, That emphasis on rules and laws seems very much to be one of the sources of trouble and conflict within that congregation. There were Jewish brethren within the church at Rome who were convinced that, hey Paul, if we don't establish some law around here, If we don't get some rules set in place, then all these Gentile Christians who we're supposed to try to be one with and be in unity with, these Gentile Christians who used to be pagans, who used to be idol worshipers, if we don't get them some law, there's going to be a blizzard of sin around here like you've never seen before. We need a rule book that they can go home and read and memorize. We need to get these folks a thorough and written code by which they can live. Paul comes along in Romans, the seventh chapter, and what he says is is, nope, nope, the gospel doesn't need more law. In fact, in the verse that we just read in verse 6, Paul says we've been released from that, we've been given something new. And this evening I'm wanting to suggest to you that the message of Romans chapter 7 is just as relevant to you and I today as it was to those Christians in Rome nearly 2,000 years ago. Because as serious disciples of the Lord, the kind of disciples who make an extra trip on Sunday to come back and to worship God on a second time, we are the folks who would love nothing more than to just de our lives. You understand what I mean by that? We want to be shed of it entirely. We don't want sin in our life. All that stuff that Paul talked about in the previous chapter about being dead to sin and alive to Christ, no longer being a slave of sin, but being a slave to righteousness. We want that, don't we? That is what we want more than anything. And yet all too often what we find is we find that that old man that we thought we had buried, he keeps coming back to life. It keeps trying to haunt us. It keeps following us. We are not completely shed of him or of her. And we hate that. We do. We absolutely hate that. We want sin gone. And so what we often do is we convince ourselves that the solution to that is we just need to make more rules. We need to make some more laws. We need to get more rigid in our law keeping. We'll just regulate sin right out of our lives. We'll outlaw sin. Paul says in Romans 7, that's just not going to work. And in this chapter, Paul is going to reveal to us why our struggle with sin is so difficult and why that often is so frustrating for us. But best of all, in Romans 7, Paul is going to lead us toward the real solution by showing us who or exactly what the real enemy is. Now as I mentioned this morning, this is not the easiest chapter to read. I once remarked to someone that this chapter is kind of the biblical equivalent of how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood. Because it's got that stuff when you get down to verses 15 down through 20 where especially if you're reading from a King James Bible this evening, bless your hearts. Good luck with that. I'm not preaching from the King James Bible this evening. I'm using the ESV which might make it a little bit more simple for us. But if you will track along with me tonight. I think we'll see what Paul has to say about the law and how the law is not the answer to be right with God. It's the gospel. We need the pure gospel. That's all that we need. And so let's read a little bit here, beginning in verse 1. In verse 1, I actually want you to notice in some of the opening phrases of verse 1, Paul does seem to be addressing a lot of this to the Jewish brethren in that congregation because he's going to use a phrase here in verse 1, Do you not know, brothers for I'm speaking to those who know the law." That probably would have been the Jewish Christians in that church. There may have been some Gentiles there who knew the law or at least knew something about the law. But by and large, he's talking to those folks who had grown up in Judaism. They know the Scriptures. I'm talking to you. He says, "...do you not know, brothers, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives?" Paul, of course, loves using illustrations. He used an illustration back in chapter 6 to describe baptism. And here in the opening verses of chapter 7, he uses the illustration of marriage to talk some about the law. Now, there certainly are some important principles that are articulated in those first couple of verses about marriage things that are helpful for us. If we were talking about, if I was preaching this evening on marriage and about the law of remarriage, I certainly would point to these passages. These are some important things for us to understand, but but Paul's not talking about marriage here. He's just using that as an illustration. The primary point here is about death. And what he says is, is that everybody understands that when a man dies, his wife is then free to remarry. The marriage law only has meaning and only has force as long as a person is living. Death death frees a person from the requirements of that law. Paul could have used a different illustration. He could have talked about taxes. He could have said while you're living you have to pay taxes. Everybody understands that. But when you die, you're free from the law of paying taxes. Paul understands here and he believes that his audience understands that in this illustration what it's all about is that death death ends the requirements of that law for a person. And so what's the application then to his audience and even to us today? How does this principle apply in the spirit realm? Well, that's verse 4. Verse 4, Paul says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Notice this contrast he's going to give. The end of verse 4 talks about how we can bear fruit for God. But if we get with this law stuff, verse 5, that while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. And so Paul says, hey, if we all understand that death frees a person from the requirements of the law, then you Roman brethren, you ought to understand that you also are freed from the law. And you are freed from the law because you died. Do you remember when you died? In fact, Paul just got done talking about when they died back in chapter 6 when he talked about baptism." Baptism is a death. You were buried with Him by baptism into death, Paul says, chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. In baptism, you were united, not only in your own death, but in the death of Jesus. And it is through Jesus that we are set free, not only from sin, but as Paul points out in verse 5, we're also set free from the law. Now, look again at verse 5, and I want us to just think about this. Verse 5, Paul says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, they were at work in our members to bear fruit for death." Think for just a second here about how law works. What's the best way to get somebody to do something? I'll tell you what I found, particularly as a parent in dealing with children, One of the best ways to get somebody to do something is tell them that they can't do something. Point out what they can't be doing. Point out to them, hey, that's forbidden. You can't do that. That is off limits for you. What usually happens, especially if you tell a child, don't do that. You can't have that. That's not for you. What do they do? They do it. They do it. And why? Because that rule, that law, it arouses their passions, the language of verse 5. The wise man talks in Proverbs 9 and in verse 17 about how stolen waters, they taste sweet to a person. As soon as somebody says no, oftentimes, that's exactly when a person wants to say yes. And Paul says that is what the law does. It stirs those sinful desires within us. And so, to these Jewish brethren in the church at Rome, These brothers who wanted more rules. They wanted everybody to be following after the law of Moses that they had so zealously followed all of their lives. Paul says, brethren, we've we've died to that. We're not under that anymore. Verse 6, we are living in a new way. In fact, that new way that is addressed there in verse 6, the way of living in the Spirit, that's really what Paul wants to talk about. He's really eager to talk about life in the Spirit. But of course he needs to deal with all this law stuff first and so he's going to have to table the spirit discussion and that's actually going to be the crux of really all of chapter 8. What does it mean to live in the spirit? I would have you notice though that when Paul talks here about flesh, verse 5, and then spirit in verse 6, he's simply talking here about how it is that we orient our lives. I think we can get really confused when we read this flesh and spirit talk. We get to thinking there's something mystical about this or something about this that's outside of our control. That's just not so. He's just describing here how a person chooses to orient their lives. The person who lives according to the flesh is the person who does what? Well, This is the person that we read about really in chapters 1, 2, and 3. The person who's living after their carnal desires. The person who's all about gratifying their their flesh and their, their, their earthly passions and desires. That's the person who's living after the flesh. Whereas the person who's living after the Spirit is what? That's the person who's just trying to live for God. The person who's thinking about God. Spiritually minded. They're living their lives in view of eternity. That's all that's meant by those terms. And I want you to just kind of just put that in your pocket and hold on to that. Especially we'll need that when we get into chapter 8 and in some of the other chapters as well. Maybe what we need to do most right here though is we need to just camp for a moment right here in verse 6. Because the point of all of this that Paul is trying to do is he's trying to move these brethren away from this very law-based approach to God. I want to be very clear, and I need to put this on the screen because I want to make sure that it is visibly in front of everyone. I want everybody to understand that freedom from law does not mean freedom from obedience. That's not what Paul is saying here, and that's not what I'm preaching this evening. And yet oftentimes that's what people decide. They read passages like this. Hey, brother, don't you see where the Bible says we're free from law? We ain't got to worry about that. I can essentially then do what I want. I don't have to worry about all these rules that are given. That's not what Paul is saying here. What Paul wants us to see here, what he's wanting the Roman brethren to see, is that the law, the law is not the basis for a relationship with God. I think that's one of the main ideas in this chapter that when we approach God in that way from kind of a law basis then life becomes all about rules and regulations and it ends up turning God into really just some kind of a some kind of a taskmaster here's this taskmaster who he's holding the law in one hand and in the other hand is what a whip and he's going to use that to whip us into shape whenever we're deviating from that law he can whip us back into shape. That fear of threat and punishment, it's able to keep us in line. And you know people like that, don't you? In fact, I even shuddered to ask, maybe you are one of those people like that who views Christianity in that very way. Where their whole motivation for obeying God and obeying His law is because we just don't want to get in trouble. I'm all feared and scared about the idea of being punished by God. All the punishments and the bad things that come along with that. And so what happens is, is some folks they end up reducing Christianity to nothing more than simply a checklist of tasks. What's all the stuff that God says I have to do? What's all the stuff that God says I'm not supposed to do? Because I want to make sure that I do the stuff I'm supposed to do and I don't do the stuff I'm not supposed to do because I don't want the taskmaster angry at me. I don't want him cracking that whip at me. I don't want to get sent to hell for all of eternity. Give me a list of rules so that I can keep. What kind of approach to God is that? What kind of a relationship with God is that? Yes, I understand that when you live that way, you can outwardly end up doing all of the right things. But inwardly what happens? Inwardly what happens is we end up hating the law and when we hate the law, ultimately we hate the lawgiver. We don't really love him. We don't love that one who's always holding the whip over us. Paul's trying to help us see God in a different way. He's trying to help these folks understand that law cannot ever be the basis for a relationship with the God of heaven. Now, right about here, I think Paul, once again, he anticipates some potential objections and questions from his readers. In fact, we might even be having some questions as well. We might be thinking, well, it kind of almost sounds like the law that God gave that that it's a problem. In fact, if you've been tracking along in the book of Romans and paying pretty close attention, you might have even thought the same thing. It kind of almost sounds like Paul's always taking shots at the law. I mean, maybe the reason that I sin and do the things that I shouldn't do is because God gave that law. It's like the thing with the kid. If you hadn't said, don't do that, I probably never would have even done that. So maybe the law is the problem here. And again, if you've been paying attention in Romans, Paul said all kinds of things about the law that maybe to our ears haven't sounded all that flattering. For example, in chapter 3, Paul said that the law, it it can't save. In chapter 4, he said that the law exposes our guilt because it shows the boundaries of right and wrong. Furthermore, in chapter 5, he says that the law, it came to increase sin. In chapter 6, he says that the law needs to be left behind to give way to the way of grace. And then, of course, there's that verse that we read already at the top of this chapter in chapter 7 about how the law, it arouses our sinful passions. And so it's easy to look at all of that and to come away thinking, man, kind of sounds like the law's the problem. Kind of sounds like God made a big mistake when he gave that law long ago. Well, what Paul's going to say in these next several verses, he's going to say, no, it's not. That's not the problem. God isn't the problem. God giving a law is not the problem. In fact, that's never been the problem. Verse 7. Verse 7, Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? The law is the problem? By no means. Absolutely not. It's one of Paul's favorite phrases here in the book of Romans. What Paul's going to develop in the following verses is that while the law of Moses is insufficient, it is not the problem. the problem with the law is the material that the law has to work with. And what does the law have to work with? Us, fallible people. The problem here is human beings and human hearts. You know, if a knowledge of what is good and what is right, if that's all that a person needs in order to be right with God, well, then, well then the law did that perfectly. The law expressed God's will exactly as He wanted it. Do this. Don't do this. But the problem is not on that end of the equation. The problem is on this end of the equation. The problem is us and our rebellious hearts. Think about it. None of us. In fact, nobody ever could say, Oh, I, I just didn't know what the right thing to do was. No. No. We know the will of God. At least everybody's sitting here in this room tonight. We know what the will of God is. The problem is is that even though we knew it, we didn't do it. That's the problem. And so the real enemy here is not the law of the Lord. The law did exactly what it was supposed to do, exactly as God gave it to do. The real enemy is sin and how sin then turns our hearts away from God and away from His will. Verse 7 continues on, Yet if it had not been for the law... I wouldn't have even known sin, Paul says, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, you will remember back in the sixth chapter how Paul describes there sin as being kind of like this wild beast. In fact, the image that I put on the screen last month was the image of of like a monster. That is the way that he is depicting sin in this book. It is a monster that comes and it overtakes us. It attacks us. Well, the question is, how does it attack us? Well, one of the ways, Paul says, is it actually attacks us through the law. Somebody maybe says, that just, that just sounds weird. I don't really understand that. Well, maybe an illustration here would be helpful for us all. In fact, I'm really hoping that after tonight, Everybody's going to have in their Bible their own little handmade drawing of this illustration to help them understand what verse 7 is talking about. I saw a writer who wrote about this and he likened the law to a puppet. And then he he then likens sin to being the hand that goes then up inside that puppet. If somebody maybe is showing you their puppet and they then just haul off and hit you in the face... Is that person going to be able to say, Oh, bad puppet. That puppet shouldn't have done that. That that, that was so wrong of that puppet to hit you like that. Of course not. We know who did that. It was the hand that went up into the puppet. It was the one who was controlling that puppet. And Paul says, so it is with sin. Sin has a way of getting a hold of the law and then using it to attack us and lead us into wrongdoing." The example that Paul uses here in verse 7 is the example of coveting and covetousness. And I really like the fact that Paul uses that as his example because that is a sin that is not always obvious to us. In fact, it's not even very obvious to most people. You know, we think about murder or stealing. Yeah, those are big and obvious sins. Everybody understands that those things are wrong. But coveting, you've got to think a little bit more about that. Coveting is a strong desire for something. It is something inward. And what Paul says is he says that if the law hadn't pointed out that those desires, those covetous feelings, that those are wrong and unlawful, Paul says, how would I have ever even known that they were wrong? I wouldn't have known that if it weren't for the law. Verse 8, Paul says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. The law ends up being used by sin. Sin gets its hand in the puppet, if you will, and then it begins to attack us. In fact, Paul says in verse 9, he says, I was I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. If you're like me, I tend to believe that that's probably a reference to when Paul was a child. During that period of his life when he did not know the law of God. He was not able to just even mentally even be able to process and understand right from wrong and be able to discern what God's will was. And we understand that about our our small children. But of course, as they grow, as they mature, they eventually reach an age. We call that the age of accountability. They reach a point of maturity where they do understand. And that's what Paul describes in verse 9, that process. I grew and I did understand. And when I understood, I did it. And when I did it, I realized I was a sinner. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life to me proved to be death. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it deceived me and through it killed me. And so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and it is righteous and it is good. So look here. Paul says it's not God's law that's defective. No, it's sin. Sin, using God's law to get at me, that's where the problem is. In fact, can I focus your attention on verse 11? Here's a good place to make a note in your Bible. Verse 11, Paul says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Do you want a a very tangible example of verse 11? That would be Genesis chapter 3. Isn't that exactly what the devil did in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis chapter 3? He asked Eve, Eve, what's God's law? What's God's law about that fruit on that tree in the midst of the garden? Eve then recited the law to her and what did the devil do next? The devil then used that law to focus her attention on the one thing that she didn't have access to, the one thing that God had restricted her from. The devil then drew her attention to that, began to twist God's law, casted doubts upon the Lord and upon His character, made it sound like it was desirable. She needs to have that. you got to have that ultimately Ultimately, it then led her into sin. And so just as in Genesis chapter 3, here in Romans chapter 7, it's not that the law was bad. Sin. Sin, this monster, it used the law to accomplish evil just exactly as the devil has been doing ever since the very beginning of time. The law is good. Paul restates there in verse 12. He's said all these things in the previous chapters that might have led his audience to think he's talking bad about the law. Paul doubles down in verse 12 and uses a number of different expressions there to say the law is good. It's holy. It's righteous. It's exactly what it needs to be. In fact, would you look there in verse 13? Because in verse 13, what Paul then begins to point out is that sin really is the problem. And he's going to use a very personal example in order to make that point. That at the end of all this, the problems that we have with God and having a right relationship with God, it's not the law that causes those problems. It is sin. Sin, sin, sin. Verse 13, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. wasn't the law that brought that death. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I would maybe even have you make a note there in verse 15 when he says, for I do not understand my own actions. Maybe the better way to think about that is I do not condone my actions. Paul's not saying here that, oh man, I'm doing all this stuff and I'm out of control and I'm not even in control of myself. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying I don't condone the things that I do. For I do not do what I want, but I end up doing the very thing I hate. but sin that dwells within me. I'm not going to try to break down all of those tone twisters there in that passage. I want to talk about this more generally. Notice how Paul regularly is using pronouns like me and I here. Paul is talking here about his own struggles. And I think there's something about this that ought to bring us some measure of comfort. We're talking here to the Apostle Paul, the guy that many of us probably consider just a spiritual superman. Paul is admitting his own struggles with sin. And he talks here about how time and time again he loses miserably in that battle with sin. That usually, of course, these verses, they usually engender lots of discussion about which part of Paul's life he's describing here. So for example, some people think that Paul in these verses is describing his life before he became a Christian. That his life as a Jew was just absolutely wearing him out, trying to keep the law again and again and failing again and again, all of that to no avail. Maybe he's talking about pre-Christianity. Some see these verses as Paul describing his struggles with sin as a Christian. The ongoing battle that all of us have with the flesh and I think we can all relate to and understand. I should tell you that I think that there are merits to both of those positions. There are also some flaws to both of those positions. And I've come to the conclusion that perhaps Paul really doesn't want us to place this text and place his story into one neatly labeled box. Oh, this is clearly talking about Paul before he became a Christian. Oh, no, no, this is clearly talking about the struggle of sin even after you become a Christian. No, I think Paul's just using himself as a general example to address what is the main issue in chapter 7. And what's the main issue in chapter 7? He's addressing the question, is the answer to sin more law? Is that what we need? Is that, is that the answer and the solution to the problem of sin in our lives? And what Paul is clearly saying in these verses, even though he doesn't say the word, is he's saying the word, no. That's not the solution. That if you're an unbeliever, what the law is going to do is it's going to show you that you're a sinner. And it's going to show you how you deserve to die. And if you're a Christian... The law is still going to be used against you by the devil to deceive you, the hand and the puppet sort of thing, to deceive you and ultimately to destroy you. So the main point that I believe Paul's driving at here, the whole chapter here to the Jewish brethren then and to us today, these people who wanted to hold on so tightly to the law of Moses with both hands, is that the law is not the way to defeat sin. Law cannot deliver us from that dreadful monster. That's not what fixes that. In fact, in many ways, what Paul is admitting in these verses is that the good, these verses where he talks about the good that I would, that I'm not able to do, etc., etc., what he's simply saying is he's saying sin is stronger than I am. This monster, it is stronger than I am. I'm not adequate to handle the problem of sin by keeping all these rules. Even with the law, I cannot do it. In fact, think about if anybody knew the law, it was Paul. If anybody knew it backwards and forwards and would be able at a moment's notice to pull the law out and to combat the devil and to combat sin, you'd have to think it would be the Apostle Paul. And yet, Paul says, I can't. I can't. I'm not able to. It's not more law and more rules. That's not what helps us to defeat sin. Verse 21, he continues on. So I find it. I find it to be a law. I'm missing a slide here. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But what I see in my members is another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Notice what Paul says here. In fact, a lot, I think, of what he's saying here really harmonizes with what he had talked about in chapter 6. Paul talks about how when we are baptized, that yes, inwardly, we are a new person. We are that new creation. And inside our hearts, we want to do what's right, right? Everybody that comes up out of the waters of baptism. I'm ready to do what's right. I'm ready to serve the Lord. And yet Paul also realizes that outside, there's still a battle that has to be waged. Our fleshly body is still at war. So what can we do? In fact, Paul even cries that out. Verse 24, Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? I want you to please notice here that the answer to that question of what do we do about sin, Paul's changed the question. It's not what. In verse 24, he says, Who? Who? I don't need something. I don't need more law to be victorious over sin. I need somebody. And he even identifies that somebody. Verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he then closes, So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This chapter ends with Paul just aching for help. You can hear that he wants to serve God fully. He wants to be able to serve Him fully with his heart and with his mind, but also serve Him fully with his body. I know what I want on the inside, but getting my outside man, getting the flesh to cooperate, that's where the struggle is. Help me, Lord. I need some help. And he stresses here that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the deliverer of that help. How he does that will be the subject of Romans, the eighth chapter. And that's when he talks about living in the Spirit. Now, of course, I'd love to talk this evening about living in the Spirit. This seems like kind of a cliffhanger way to end the sermon this evening. But I do want us to make sure that we're taking away the main things from chapter 7 that we ought to be taking away. And that begins by just reiterating one of the points that we made a little bit earlier. And that is that law-keeping, it is not the basis. It cannot ever be the basis for our relationship with God. That's just not the way that we're going to solidify and make our relationship with God good and strong and deep. If we make and reduce Christianity into little more than keeping rules and abiding by laws, then we're never going to get, we're never going to, get to where we want to with the Lord. If our spirituality with God is all about just following rules, then what we're going to find is we're going to find ourselves always falling short because we're never going to be able to keep all of those rules. And as a result, we will deprive ourselves of the joy and the peace and the great blessings that come through serving and following Jesus Christ, living in the Spirit, having a deep relationship with God where we are serving Him out of a heart of love. That's the motivation. I don't want to be motivated by keeping rules. I want to be motivated to serve God because I love God with my heart, mind, soul, and strength which will lead me to say something here as well about how this chapter really drives home the point that we must not ever, ever underestimate sin. It is worth us remembering that sin here is being described by Paul. It's not a particular sin that we commit. No, it is sin as being this dominating force, that monster that overtakes us. We become enslaved to it and all of the woes and the troubles that come along with that, this makes me wonder, why do we ever make jokes about sin? Why do we ever laugh about that? We see the wrong that other people are involved in, and we make little snide remarks. Maybe we ourselves are involved in wicked things, and the way to kind of excuse that in our minds is to make a little joke about that. We trifle with sin in that way. When we think of sin the way Paul describes it in this chapter... I think it would completely adjust how we think about sin and how we deal with that in our lives. We will not treat it as something that is trivial. Instead, we'll see it as the monster that it really is. We'll see how the devil is so twisted and so evil that he will twist even a good thing like the law of the Lord in order to get us involved in it, which then leads to this last thing. And that is, I really think that this chapter helps us to see that Christianity is not a self-help program. I think there are people who conceive Christianity as being the way to get get yourself better. It's the way to get yourself cleaned up. It's the way to get your act together and you can just really be somebody. But yet listen to the words of the apostle in verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. Do you hear Paul here? That doesn't sound like Paul's living his best life and making progress in the way that the world would define that. And that's because Christianity is not some self help program. There is no self that's able to help the problem of sin. We cannot succeed on our own. We on our own cannot ever do that. What we need is we need help. Who will deliver me? Paul asks here. We need Jesus Christ. And maybe that's a point that we don't emphasize nearly enough. You know, we talk an awful lot about, and even I as the preacher, I preach an awful lot about about how we can and how we should do more. Read your Bible more. Pray more. Serve more. Be more involved in the body of Christ. Just do it. Just be better and just do better. And there certainly is something to be said for that. Paul began the book of Romans by talking about the obedience of faith. In chapter 6, he talked about being a slave of righteousness, doing good things. That's important. But at the end of the day, we need the help of God. We need to be able to reach the place where Paul was, where Paul says, I can't do it. On my own, I am powerless. I'm not strong enough to battle against sin and be victorious. I need the Lord. Who who will deliver me from this body of flesh? It is Jesus the Christ. Paul in the book of Acts would talk about, to this present day, I have had the help that comes from God. What about you this evening? Do you have enough humility about you to be at the place in your life where you realize, I can't do it. I cannot do this on my own. There is no way that I will ever be able to do this. Are you at that point? Have you come to that important realization? If you have, then I hope that this evening would be the night that you would reach out to Jesus Christ. That you would allow Him to cleanse you and to help you and to provide you the forgiveness and provide for you the way that you need in order to be in a right relationship with God. If you've never been buried with Christ in the waters of baptism, all things are ready this evening for you to do just that. We would love nothing more than to hear your confession that Jesus is the Son of God and to help you be brought into unity with Christ through His death, burial, and resurrection in the waters of baptism. Can we help you to do that this evening? There may be somebody here this evening who's of an age of accountability. Paul talked there in the middle of that chapter about how there was a point in his life when, yeah, he was was safe. He didn't understand the commandment. But a point came where he did understand. And he realized he was accountable. And he needed to do something about that. I think we got some people in this room tonight who have reached that stage. You're at an age of accountability. You understand the commandment of the Lord. Now's the time to act upon it. Brother, sister, if you've not been serving the Lord faithfully as you should, this is an invitation for you as well to come to the Lord, humble yourself before Him and say, I can't do it on my own, Lord. I need you. I need my brothers and my sisters. Let us pray with you and help you so that we can all be on the road that leads to heaven. Whatever your need may be this evening, you simply need to come to the front, make that known, do that right now while we stand and while we sing.